Hello, I am Jordan Haas, and welcome to my podcast, a podcast about game shows, I suppose. Uh, anyway, it's a niche podcast about the wonderful world of television game shows. As you can tell, this is a niche podcast, meaning it's one specific subject, but unlike a lot of these niche subjects, I don't have much friends. A lot of these places are two and three people talking about anything from music to a specific television series to food or theme park rides, but I'm lonely. <sighs> well, the good news is I guess no one can tell me to shut up, so that means I can ramble about any specific game show I want for a good hour or so. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to chime in, you can always just send me a tweet over on Twitter at Jordha. Or send me an email at jordanhaas at gmail.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-H-A-S-S. Anyway, I might as well just start by professing to say, what's the background with me and game shows? I've been writing about game shows and talking about game shows for a pretty long time. Probably more than anything else I've done on the internet. Um, You know, it's it's a weird niche genre of television. Uh, the quickest way to explain game shows is usually a no, it's a non-scripted show. That means that there is no determination of what the game show is. Uh, the, the, the craziest thing about it is it's very, very, quote-unquote, cheap. Now, when we mean cheap, you know, one set versus, a, you know, a drama or comedy where there's multiple sets with actors and their paychecks. With this show, there's usually just one host, so one casted person, one actor, to play the role of the host uh, as they go through the guidelines of the format. Uh, in addition to that's the one set, rather it's podiums or a game board or whatever. Um, that's basically why they're quote-unquote cheap. Um, a lot of times when there is a strike going on, rather a production strike, a writer's strike, uh, there is a huge surge in this because a lot of the time these shows are non-union, which means they can crank out a thousand of these and everything will be all fine and dandy. Um, that's the basic building blocks about game shows. We, of course, will be explaining more about game shows as this podcast goes along. <clears throat> uh, the history of me with game shows. Um, I mean, uh, the quickest way to explain this is simply I was a latchkey kid. Uh, single mom, and uh, I was raised by the grandma. So, of course, the grandma would watch the game shows, so I would watch the game shows along with her. Uh, The thing is, though, you know, there is the time when then she dies, and then you're by yourself, and that's kind of lonely. So when you kind of get all alone, you kind of just watch television. In her memory, I just watched a lot of game shows. I mean, I, I still grew up watching, like, Batman animated series, still had a quote-unquote childhood with childhood shows. But when it comes to th- things like uh, game shows, that was kind of my legacy along with her. Uh, she kind of thought I would make a good game show host, which I thought was very uh, nice of her. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I still miss you very much, Grandma. Um... But, uh, so when it comes to game shows, you know, we're talking the 90s. So we were in peak Nickelodeon game show mode with the Double Dare, which I at the time we family Double Dare. And then you would have your Guts, your Legends in Temple, and then you had your Figure It Out, and then you had uh, all sorts of titles with that series. And then, of course, because it was syndicated series, you had Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Uh, at the time, because it was the 90s, 
You also had some MTV shows that I barely watched, uh, such as uh, Idiot Savants, for instance. Uh, then you got yourself your, your classic CBS series, which at the time was The Price is Right. This was The Price is Right in the 90s, which had purple, orange, foamy carpet that looked like weird drapery. Uh, that was the 90s with that, then you can just talk about the 2000s, but you know, with each game show, you will learn more about my life as we go along. Um, so, of course, you know, my whole thing was looking at game shows. But a lot of times, there are a lot of people look at game shows in different ways, and different perspectives. Uh, I mean, for one thing, it's why do we watch game shows? Uh, there's a lot of answers you can come with it. A lot of thing, people like it because things don't change with the format, so... It really is just every week, it's the same day, ring in, ring out, so it's the repetition that people enjoy. Uh, A lot of people enjoy the aspiration of it, being rewarded for, you know, pushing your luck or knowing trivia. Some people like the competition aspect. It's a head-to-head competition over who knows the most about something. And, And there's so many different reasons, and depending on who you ask within the game show world, you'll get a different answer. For me, I kind of like a lot of variations on this subject. For me, I think a good game show is one that you, the viewer at home, can participate in. Rather, it's like playing along, screaming at the television, and aspiring to want to be a contestant. And you think, well, that's easy. I can do that. I want to be a contestant on that. I can do that. If it's something like that, it works. And the best game shows, I feel, are ones that sort of tell stories. And there's going to be two different types of wins, I say, stories. Like, Deal or No Deal is they cast specific contestants and they tell a story within the game. Other times, it's a storytelling in terms of just what is the scene that created the game show itself. Like, why the hell is Are You Smart in the Fifth Grader set in a classroom? So the storytelling is basically the contestant having flashbacks in the fifth grade. So he's in this weird fifth grade classroom. Things like that are what I'm fascinated by. Uh, when I uh, was going into uh, high school, I, I kind of was like, oh, I don't know what to do. So I did theater stuff. I did tutoring. I did all sorts of mathematical stuff just to figure out where I belong. And it's kind of, and I'm still that way. Uh, so, so it was kind of like, okay, I do a little theater, I do a little acting, I do a little writing, I'm funny, I'll do some stand-up comedy, I kind of like this, like a one-man wacky show, I know a lot about television, not just game shows, but this is my specific niche, so I'm going to stick with game shows, and that's why it's the game show podcast. Um, so I decided this is going to be a, a podcast that I feel is almost 30 years in the making for me, just... Hey, Jordan, what can you tell me about this game? Now, I don't want this podcast to be a history podcast. There's a lot of places where you can just Google the answer to a lot of this stuff. So a lot of this is very feelings over facts. Sorry, folks. That's the way it's going to be on this one. Um, But I will try and explain uh, game shows as we go along as each episode chronicalizes one game show uh, from the past or present. Um... So when I graduated from high school and I had no ambitions, I kind of just went, eh, I'll just go into a, the community college, see what I do. Because at the time, you know, you're in high school. And this was like right before the 2008 uh, big recession. So a lot of people went straight into college and it just got worse. 
so for me, I went to the community colleges, and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I really uh, am struggling to figure this out. Um, so I took, you know, like film theory. I took a media analysis. I took education classes. And at the time, I was thinking, okay, maybe like elementary teaching. Because I'm really good at educating kids about things and, and breaking things down and kind of helping them out and better understanding stuff. Because I kind of think there's this fascinating world where it's if you can just help someone go through uh, a different things and explain it to them, it, it's, it's a fun experience. Um, but then when I went after the two years and going through a lot of different hurdles and, you know, communication classes and going through some light minor theater classes, um, I kind of had to change my major because I went into Cal State Northridge. And it was right when I was in like the second or third teaching class, I kind of just got fizzled out with it. It's not that I hate children or it or hate education or hate teaching or hate teachers because teachers are like really need to get paid a lot of money for the stuff they deal with when it comes to the bureaucracy of the educational system plus the the parents that come and yell at them because their kids did not understand a test, and also the importance of tests. Are they really important, yes or no? And all these debates when it comes to the services of education. And I can, of course, explain that if you want, and the quick answer is tests don't really help you out. It's just kind of regurgitating information, which is trivia. That's basically, oh boy, you know Jeopardy, you deserve money. That does not help mean you know anything about anything. That just means you know how to regurgitate information. There needs to be some practicality when it comes to that stuff. Uh, so I, I basically had a nervous breakdown, uh, as, as one does when you've spent the last two years of your life thinking, I'm going to be in education. And, you know, your mom says you should do what you love because that's the way a lot of boomers are, I guess. And then plus she cares about you. So she kind of just said, go into television production. You love game shows. I can see you working in game shows. So, of course, I go into television. In Cal State Northridge, besides having the best teaching program and one of the best business schools, has one of the best television and film programs and i'm lucky enough to go in there um of course film school is the film school and that's you know a lot of people want to be directors and me if i'm going to do game shows of course I want to do television uh unfortunately i would say when it comes to television program as much as i learned a lot uh it, it kind of didn't help me in terms of where i want to go in the world of game shows you, you learn building blocks like what's audio, what's video, editing, the importance of editing, set design, the importance of, uh, of casting. And a lot of these things do matter a lot. And I don't know if I want to regurgitate the facts I got in college on a podcast. Um, but there is a lot of people that kind of, I think, had a chip on their shoulder in certain classes because maybe they didn't put in the film program or maybe it's it's some sort of like I'm the director I make the rules or a production or a hustle or something but it made me miserable I did not have really a good time in television until near the very end when I've been in niche classes letting people know 
My goal is game shows. My goal is reality competition. I think those are where game shows go. And it wasn't until I had those connections that it opened the door to a lot of great people within the game show world. With those people in the world, I now have access to a lot of great people within the game show industry. Producers, writers, challenge producers, people who make the game shows that if I was seven or eight, I would be like crying at night going, I'm lucky to know these people. And a lot of these people I see as actual like friends. Of course, they don't, you know, respond to my tweets and Facebook posts. So I'm a little grumpy. No, that's fine. Um, Because they're very busy. But no, they're very, very nice people. And the people within the industry that knows game shows are working in game shows. So when I found that out, it really made me uh, feel better about myself when it comes to loving game shows. Because now I realize I'm not alone. The people making game shows love game shows. They have different viewpoints on game shows than I do, but everyone does. And that's what makes this industry so great, is because everybody brings something new to the table. A different perspective. How do you market? What's it going to be like? Should we have a big set with dramatic uh, spotlights, or should it be just brightly lit and just like a color free-for-all? Things like that make it so amazing in the world of game shows. Um... I don't really get much jobs in the industry, though, because, and this is the, the weird part, when it comes to a job in the industry, yes, there's a lot of hustling going on, and you got to make your moves. I don't do the hustle and bustle. I think I'm one of those, if you need me, you'll come get me. I will come to you if I need help, but I know if you need me, I'm there for you. So if you have anything cool you want to send me, send it my way. So if you go to jordanhaas.com and you have a job for me, please send it. I am pretty good at writing, uh, editing, uh, audio production, video productions. Uh, not really good at building sets, though. Um, Four bed creation, uh, testing games, uh, and, and, and business management and technology, if this is ITT tech. Uh, so when it comes to a game show... Uh, it, it, it's, uh, there's so many jobs, but the catch is the way the industry is going these days. Uh, it used to be one game show was all you needed to have like a good salary for the year. But because the industry is basically budget cutting a lot of things, uh, the only way you can really be threading water in the industry and in television, especially game shows where they're only recording maybe 12, 13 episodes, much like a Netflix season is you have to have maybe four or five shows in your belt or you are on a longevity-based show like a Wheel of Fortune, uh, Jeopardy, a Price is Right, a Let's Make a Deal. And I think at this time, maybe Family Feud. Family Feud is in syndication and it is getting the numbers. But for a while there, a lot of people who worked Family Feud had to work on other projects as well. Um, so it, it, it's a lot of crazy stuff in the industry when it comes to salary work. Uh, that's not to say, boy, this industry is flaky, this industry is bad. But what that means is people will stick together and hire their closer friends first before they get to me. And that I, I can understand. And that's why I'm never really distraught. Um, I get to say hi to these people. I'm lucky to be basically near them at all. And if I wanted to, I can go to a taping of these shows and say hi and have a great time. 
tapings of game shows are different than tapings, uh, different than what you might see on the final broadcast. That might be because of technical errors, or that might be because someone really did a screwed up round and the producers just went, this round just sucks, can we just redo it? And per standards and practices, dude, they could. It's really weird. It's really weird industry, but very, very fascinating. And it's just one of those things that you just don't really understand. Even, even if you're in there as a lifer, there's new things that just shock you into going, wow, that's new. You never knew about HQ. You don't know about the, the rise of, of ambush game shows. And game shows can now be set here. Or what's a stunt? What's a stunt game show? And what's what's a new generation of game shows? Are we just doing 80s revivals? Are we doing 70s revivals? So we're just going to go back to doing match game pyramid uh, to tell the truth? Or are we going to go into the new world of game shows? Like uh, The Wall like uh like uh the the uh beat the wheel i think that's the name of the game that was a tentative title for a fox series with dax shepherd uh like mental samurai is it gonna be more physical challenge game shows like the titan games like american like american gladiators is going to come back is that going to come back again i don't know but that stuff i kind of find fascinating um i think a lot of marketing though when it comes to rebooting a game show is a very challenging because a lot of game shows are still stuck in that television mode and not necessarily thinking about, you know, YouTube or Netflix or Hulu where they not only can be, you know, like like the I think the new generation of game shows and not a lot of people are cracking this yet is it needs to be bingeable. I think if you're going to make a new game show in in 2019, a game show needs to be bingeable, which means I missed an episode. I want to watch it, so I want to see it. Or maybe I just don't want to see it first run. I want to see two or three episodes at a time and get more. I don't know if that means having like reality competition style or just uh, changing the contestants out because... It changes either way. And there's a lot of different ways you can make a game show work. But anyway, that's that's kind of something I find fascinating with game shows. Uh, it is a crazy, crazy world when it comes to uh, stuff like this. Um, I, I, fa- I find it fascinating. I, it's, it's sometimes difficult to understand why. And now, because this is a podcast where I have to talk to a microphone uh, about it, um, I, I hope this is... An entertaining, uh, a fun-filled, laugh-filled game show podcast. Um, so where were we going? Um, so yeah, they're past, the present, the future. And for me, I still don't know where I belong. Um, I know, I know, my degree is in television. I will probably say it's in game shows. Uh, because a lot of the, the stuff I've learned while well, in, in, in Northridge uh, was a great thing, is a great uh, starting point in understanding television. But behind the scenes, you know, you go to tapings, you look at encyclopedias, you look at the history of production, 
you look at what goes into a game show versus something else, like standards and practices. You look at the game show scandals of the 1950s and learn why we don't do that anymore. Look at that, our little genius. You rem- I remember that. I remember that, our little genius. Um, so things like that get, sh- get shown, and it, it becomes uh, a fun uh, adding point to how you understand game shows. Uh, even directing for game shows is different than directing for a sitcom or a comedy. The thing is, though, the shots inside them, the close-ups, uh, the full shots, things like that uh, also make for uh, a game. Um, if you notice, for instance, here's a quick, here's a quick fun, fun-filled uh, thing. If you notice on Jeopardy, uh, when it comes to the main game, you usually see, you know, the bus shot or the podium. But when it comes to the daily double, you know, it's the close-up shot of just the single person talking. But when you get to the the final in Jeopardy, it's an even closer shot than that of the daily double. Or, or the close-up, because they want to show a, just a tad more of the tension that comes with a final round, which is, in this case, uh, the final Jeopardy clue. Things like that I find a little fascinating. Of course, you know, sometimes the directing's off, the camera's off, and it just stays the same. But when it's that little slightly zoom in, that makes for a little more fascinating stuff. Uh, things like that I, I, I just think not a lot of people see, or, or if I say it, I don't think they understand. Or maybe I just am talking out of my ass, which it could also be. I, I'm just going to say this right now in the podcast. I could be talking out of my ass. And that's what makes it such a great podcast, I feel. Because it could be a game show podcast where the guy who says he's the next on game shows literally talks out of his ass. Um, there, I think I said a lot more adult stuff. For that, so if you're a kid watching this, you're you know you're a child, you're a teenager, uh, and you're just like I love game shows. Um, you're, you're probably on like Golden Road forums or on DeviantArt drawing the Wheel of Fortune. Uh, you know, I, I'm just gonna warn you. I'm gonna be saying a lot of curse words on this stuff, so a word of warning on that. Um, but thank you for your patronage, and, and keep uh, believing. And I, and just know a lot of people do see that stuff within the world. So, uh, even if you don't hear back from these people, they, they like you a lot. So there's some encouragement there. Um, so that there's the preface there. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast so far. It's been 22 minutes and we have yet to talk about a specific game show. Uh, so this is the ceremony first episode, and I just what I basically did was I just threw a whole lot of list of game shows and did not know what to talk about. So I decided should I do something new, or something recent, or something old? What would be a great first game show? And uh, for that, I decided it should be the classic game show from the uh, mid two thousands, one versus one hundred. So tonight's episode's about the game show 1 versus 100. Uh, so I, it came out, I believe, in 2006. It, ble- it came out the same time as Deal or No Deal. Like, Deal or No Deal became a massive hit, and we'll talk about Deal or No Deal soon. And this was kind of supposed to be the sister show 
to uh, Deal or No Deal. Much like Deal or No Deal, 1 versus 100 was a foreign format. Uh, a big thing about a lot of American game shows in modern times is they're not original game shows created in America. A lot of game shows nowadays that are a quote-unquote new format are actually something that existed in a foreign country. Sometimes it's Israel, sometimes it's Holland, sometimes it's Australia or the United Kingdom. And it's one of my fun hobbies is to look at international formats and see can it work in America. A lot of shows that I thought would work do not. Things like Taskmaster I thought could work in America, but when you decide to change the rules a bit, uh, break it from an hour-long show to a 30-minute show... Uh, and not really focus your attention on the banter between the contestants so much as just watching people eat shit in task, it doesn't work. 1 versus 100 is similar. Um, the, the quickest way to explain the show is that <laughs> it's one person versus 100. Um, that's the name of the title of the show. Uh, but uh, I, I decided to pick this show because a lot of people, even if they're not in the world of game shows, seem to have been fascinated by the world of 1 versus 100, specifically in the world of video games. And I figure, hey, you love video games. This should be a good starting point for you. Um, because I obviously the, the Xbox Live version, we'll talk about it in just a bit. Um, but things like Battle Royale games, such as PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds or Fortnite, have basically made Battle Royales popular. A Battle Royale game is essentially you put 100 people... I'm just going to put 100 because that's both the games I play is PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds and Fortnite. You put 100 people on an island, and then your goal is to knock them out by either shooting them or meleeing them, and then they're out of the game. If they're killed off uh they're they're off the game and they have to go back to the lobby or just spectate and see who wins um things like that work uh, i think it's the fascinating thing because it's essentially uh, it, it, it it's the uh extravaganza it's the it's the grandiose of it's 100 people playing the same game at the same time at the same time i guess i have to say i have to repeat myself and say same time uh at the same time, it's this you versus the world kind of aspect. You know, the whole world is out to get you. So you got to just play it safe, strategize, make partners, make quick alliances, all that kind of cool stuff when it comes to a battle royale game. You know, grab your weapons, grab your health kits, uh, plan your attack. When is the right time to keep moving or do you, you just camp a bit and wait for people to come to you? It's great. So I see 1 versus 100 as essentially the Battle Royale uh, format turned into a game show. Now, it's not necessarily there's going to be one person left standing, although there was a 1 versus 100 last man standing uh, special. Uh, but what I like about it is the whole goal is you're focusing on the one player, and then there's a mob of 100 people. So uh, I forgot where the original version is and i don't know if i want to keep looking quickly because i once again i i don't want to i'm talking out my ass when it comes to one versus 100 i believe the original version was maybe the united kingdom 
I like to say, because that was a, a national lottery show. Um, okay. It started in the Netherlands as Ein Tegen 100, so 1 versus 100. Okay. Of course it's the Netherlands um, for the National Post Code Lottery. All right, and it's uh, there's different helps in different formats. Um, so for the sake of this version, um, we will just explain the only two versions I've seen. Actually, three, uh, which will be the American editions, the United Kingdom version, and the Xbox Live edition. Uh, Xbox Live edition similar to the United States version. Uh, so the rules are basically simple. It's one person taking on 100 other people. Uh, as, depending on the format, uh, th things can change. So for the UK edition, uh, the contestant chooses between an easy category or a hard category. Uh, the more they get right, uh, the bigger their total gets. The only way they can make the money is if they knock out all 100 people. If at any point the the contestant gets a question wrong, uh, they are out of the game and someone left from the, say, 12 or 13 people left becomes the next contestant. So for the contestants in the mob, their incentive is to stay around as long as possible so then they can be the eligible contestant. Um, on on the if So you have to try to be the one. Um, to win any money. Uh, and, and to me, I think that show is okay because then it becomes sort of like, what's the appeal to this? But I think the better edition of this is actually the American edition. Um, the American edition is, of course, a little more Americanized. Uh, there, there's so many variations on the 1 versus 100 format in America even that I think this is going to be uh, where it goes. So... Uh, one contestant is a totally non-related to the mob person. It's your classical dealer no deal, woo 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 yeah whoa contestant, um, and they're going to be taking on one hundred mob members. Unlike uh, like various versions on the mob, and this is similar to say the Australian version because Australian edition plays by the American rules. The mob is not just one hundred total strangers. There are total strangers in the mob. Uh, because casting-wise, they say, hey, you and Cassie go in here. The only way to make money is you eliminate the one. The only way the one makes money is if they take the money instead of going for the mob. Um, but there is gimmick casting within the mob. So it's not just one versus 100 people. It's, you know, eight nuclear biologists. It's five... Uh, brain uh brain surgeons it's it's 12 scrabble champions it's three million dollar winners on who wants to be a millionaire or it, it's something silly like uh it's 12 clowns it's just people in clown makeup uh things like that are the gimmick casting of the mob itself in addition to whoever's the main contestant in the show uh so the host of dealer of one versus 100 in America is Bob Saget. That's right. Wonderful television host of full house, Bob Saget of America's Funniest Home Videos fame, Bob Saget, the guy with the very rouchy uh, stand-up comedy, Bob Saget, the guy who is famous in that one Jamie Kennedy song, Bob Saget. Uh, he uh, basically provides uh, the, the, the comedy chops on the show because in today's world of game shows um 
it's it's stand-up comedians that get the gigs. Uh, so for Bob Saget, he basically uh, instructs the contestant to come in. There's three buttons, A, B, or C, and we just get to questions. Um, now, depending on which season, which time they recorded, the rules change. Uh, the only thing that was famous is it's this big, grandiose, basically, think Roman Colosseum of different podiums right in front of the contestant with purple and pink lighting and steel bars. And it looks like it looks somewhat industrial but futuristic. Kinda like um kinda like the uh the, the that weird court uh, that weird uh Congress looking thing in Star Wars, but with lights, a lot of LED lights. And depending on the season, the question board either being on the side of industrial like steel reams and, and I beams or put inside the mob, uh, where there's this huge question screen, and it's really cool. Um, so, for the for the one, if he can knock out all 100 people in the mob, that one person will win $1 million. However, at various points in the game, the player may be tempted to leave the game with the money, or they can keep playing and go after the mob. For the mob to win any money in the game, that one player must get their question wrong. There are various helps. And also, the helps changed depending on the season. Um, so, let's just get started and explain quickly. Uh, it used to be the original season one rules were uh, every question was worth a value. And for every person eliminated was multiplying that value. For instance... Question one was worth $100 in the very, very, very first episode. Uh, then it was $500, 1000 2000 3000 4000 all the way to $10,000. Um, if, for like, say, you got four people got it wrong on the first question, that's 400 bucks. Do you want the money, 400 bucks, or do you want the mob and keep playing? You're 96 away from $1 million. Then we go to second question for $500, and we keep going. In episodes three to five, they kind of said we have to stretch it out just a bit because by the time they got to the third question, it's already $1,000 and, oh, geez, we can't afford people leaving and the first two questions are too easy. So it was like 100, 250, 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, didn't 7,500, then $10,000, and any question thereafter was $10,000. And I thought that was a like a weird version of it. And then the final version of season one uh, was a uh, was I think my favorite version of it, where the first three questions were one thousand dollars. Then you get the money or the mob question. If you choose to go after the mob, you have to get two questions right at two thousand dollars before you decide money or the mob. Then it goes three thousand, four thousand, five thousand, six thousand, seven thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand, or ten thousand dollars. $10,000 was a really good f final, like, top tier uh, for the 1 versus 100 game because, if you do the math correctly, 100 times 10,000 is 1 million, which means if at any point, you know, no one gets any questions wrong and then you're at question 13, you can get one question, knock out the entire mob and get $1 million or like 80 people and get $800,000. And that's kind of a really cool idea that comes with the game. 
Of course, not a lot of people did that because the idea was supposed to be, you know, the risk reward of in between the game. When you are maybe locked out 47 people and, you know, you've the next questions were 4000 ahead. Do you really want to risk your $44,000 for maybe $12,000 more on the next question? That's kind of the dilemma that came with uh, Money or the Mob in 1 versus 100 when it comes to the payout structure per head. Then they changed it in Season 2. In Season 2, which is the ones most commonly seen in... uh, Well, like the, the, the payout per head's the I Win game. And the very first NBC Online game. In season two, because it's a game show and, you know, we have to make sure every game show is like a game show like Millionaire. Or Minute to Win It. Or Millionaire. Or or, or Smarter Than a Fifth Grader. They decided we need to do a, a, the, the, ten, the classic frustrating 10-tier prize tree. Where for every 10 people you knock out, you get money. So if you knocked out less than 10, you don't get any money. But the second there is 90 people or less, you get, uh, I believe, $1,000. Then it becomes the 5, 10, 25, 50, 75, 100, 250. And because it always is that way, that means that the last two tiers are half a million and then $1 million if you knock out all 100 people of the mob. Uh, and I thought, okay, that's, I mean, that, that sort of saves the game because now it's all about you need to continue playing so you can get more money versus the, if you had five or six people knocked out per question or you, you're down to 12 people and no one gets any questions wrong, do you really want to keep risking it on that one question knowing you're not making any money? Uh and plus, then if you're a mob member, you know, get, getting a question wrong early on doesn't really make you that much money. But getting a question, you know, getting the one to get their question wrong later on makes you bigger money. So, like, if it was, like, $100 ahead on the first question, and it's $60, like $6,000 split amongst 80 people, it's not that big of a big celebration. Um. So they try, I think, to fix that with the $1,000, first three, 2000 And then with the price tree idea, I think they were trying to go for the tension when it comes to, all right, we have 60 people left, 70 people are gone, 80 people are gone. Because the tension is supposed to get, get into it when there's like less than 20 people. Because now we know the the remaining 20 people in the mob are very, very smart people. So now it really becomes a one-on-one challenge. Do you think you can beat this one guy in one more question? Are you sure about that? One more question gets you this much money. Or the thought of, say, you had like, I believe like 82 people left. Or no, let's go back to the, uh, let's go, let me rewind it. Suppose there's like 21 people left in the mob. 21 which means if you knock out just one more person, it goes from 100000 to a quarter million dollars. Do you want to go one more time so if one person gets it wrong, you get your money? That's the dilemma. And I think that was what they're going for with the uh, the 10 tier, 10 per person prize tree. Which, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. That's neat. Um, 
But when it came to season two, I think a lot of people fell off because they were now doing real gimmicks like Last Man Standing, Last Woman Standing, uh, the most hated mob in America where it was DMV people and, and congressmen or something. It was... I, did, I don't understand that at all. Um, but what I liked uh, about the show was uh, the, basically Bob Saget's chemistry with the contestant and the mob. When it came to the set dressing and all the lighting and all the steel bars and there were stairs and in, in the center of the stairs there was a big like tray of $1 million because you have to have the prop million because you're giving away a million bucks. But no one's ever really won the million dollars with the million dollar tray. So it, it, it's kind of weird. There has been a million dollar winner on season two's first episode when they were doing the one man versus 100 women and one woman versus 100 men gimmick. And the one man beat 100 women asking a question about the biggest card giving holiday in America and they got it right. But at no point did they like go down and see the million and play with the million or any of that. So it made me wonder why the hell is there a million dollars in prop cash on the tray and what happens if someone beats the mob? Do they play with the money? Is there confetti? Nothing. It was just a light show. And I, I just thought that was kind of a disappointment. And I think because of that disappointment or because there was finally a million dollar winner on the game show, it must have had a falling out. It did spawn a DS game. It did spawn a plug-and-play Jack's Pacific game. Remember Jack's Pacific? Um, and a couple of I, those uh, LED, like, almost pseudo-Tiger Electronics toys. One was, like, a little tiny one, and one was this big tower-looking thing that I kind of enjoyed. And I actually bought that one. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, also, I believe they changed lifelines. At, originally, it was... Uh, there was... Uh, there was Ask the Mob and Pull the Mob uh, as your only two lifelines. Ask the Mob um, basically uh, uh, took the two most popular answers and grabbed one person from each of those answers to state their case on why they chose it. So if it was like... um, uh, Let's do a a gimmick question like... uh, if you order the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity, you would most likely be found at what restaurant? A. Denny's. B. IHOP. C. Waffle House. Mob lock in now. Do, 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 boop. I don't know. Ask the mob. All right. We're asking the mob. Let's see. How, what's the first person? Beep. Number 42. What's your name? Chris. I don't know. Chris, what did you lock in? I went with B, I hop. Why I hop? Uh, because the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity is at that restaurant. I had it for breakfast this morning. Oh, that's good. Um, then let's see who got the second most popular. Beep. Oh, number 22. What's your name? I'm Joy. Hi, Joy. What did you lock in? I locked in with Denny's. Why Denny's? Because I like breakfast. But I don't know. I think it's breakfast at Denny's, not not IHOP. So I think I'm right. Okay, well, we know it's not Waffle House. So is it A or B? So basically it becomes a 50-50 choice. Like a 50-50 life on who wants to be a millionaire. But now you had basically essentially a pseudo phone a friend because now the mob's telling you what to do. Of course, 
they want you to pick their answer because they want you to keep playing. But the incentive is weird because if you knew you were wrong, they were kind of still incentivizing you to pick their answer, even if you were kind of lying to them and, you know, being annoying. So that's kind of weird. Um, The second answer was called pull the mob, which basically was you pick one of the three answers, the one you're kind of leaning towards. And then it will tell you of the remaining mob members how many people got wrong. So if it was the very first question and you pull the mob and it was like, I think it's uh, B, IHOP. How many people said IHOP? Oh, 83 people said it was IHOP. Okay. Does that help you out? Kind of like the Ask the Audience lifeline. Um, Later on in the show, uh, there was one extra lifeline called Trust the Mob. With Trust the Mob you basically took the most popular answer. It was sort of like just speeding through the ask the mob, pull the mob lifeline, and just, or sorry, help, and just sped it through the entire game. Uh, so so then they got to go through and say, hey, well, you got the question right. And it's a really cool idea for a lifeline because, you know, it speeds it through, but there's also the risk involved because I think what a lot of the time they used it on was a tricky question that was intended to eliminate a good majority of the mob because it had a weirded worded question or it was one of my favorites which i call a two-part question a two-part question essentially is uh kind of like a you don't know jack question or um something where it's not specific enough uh for for instance uh a good two-part question is uh who is the current president of the united states because you know the answer would be donald trump but then it's well no it's donald trump and then you have your three choices boo doop the host of the apprentice boo boop the host of big brother boo boop the host of the mole all right, mob, lock in your answer. So now it's no longer, oh, I know it's Donald Trump. Now it's, wait, what show did Donald Trump host? That becomes the two-parter. And I think that's funny because it adds an extra layer to the game. And, of course, it knocks out mob members because they only have, like, 10 seconds to figure it out. So they have to really rush into figuring out the answer versus the one who gets to just talk it out for a few minutes. And, of course, because it is a game show where there's big money on the line, you have the great trope of let's have the contestant talk out their answer because that's the only way these shows can survive without sounding boring. So you have to have the contestant go, well, I know that Donald Trump is a president and I know he was the host of a game show and he said you're fired. And I believe The Apprentice was the game show where he said you're fired. So I will lock in A, The Apprentice. And they push the button and that's the show. Like things like that. Now with 1 versus 100 after the first two seasons, it did have a big appeal. Uh, one of the first things that came after it was uh, essentially an Xbox Live game. And let me just check real quick. Uh, one versus 100 Xbox Live game. That's not going to be the majority of the show. Uh, but the Xbox Live edition uh, was 
basically a cool feature that they had, I believe, in 2008. I remember there was a giant bomb quick look. I have to check real quick. Okay, so 2009. Um, so it basically followed the same rules as the Season 2 format, where it was for every 10 people knocked out, you get more points. I think because they were using Microsoft Points at the time, not gift card. Um, so for every person the uh, the one knocks out it, it they get a little bit more let me holy sh okay let me check uh <clears throat> one versus 100 lives so there was a mob of 100 randomly selected and then there was a one that was selected and then there was the viewers they got to play along with each game so if the one got a question uh it goes 160 160 okay 300 600 800 1200 2000 3000 5000 6000 Wow, geez, what a jump to go from 5,000 to 6,000. And then if they get the zero, if they not get them all out, they get 10,000 uh, PlayStation, uh, sorry, uh, Xbox points. Let me see what the 10,000 points was equal to. I don't think they were equal. Okay, uh, 80 Microsoft points equaled $1. All right, so... So basically, okay, so if it was 80 bucks, it was 80 points, that means it went $2. Uh, then, wow, so 10,000, that's kind of a weird, uh, 400 arcade uh, points was $5, so 10,000 divided by 400. Jeez, I used to do math, what am I doing? I think it was 25 bucks. What is it like twenty five dollars, like one hundred twenty five dollars maybe? Let's see, four hundred is five bucks. Four hundred times five, it'll be twenty five dollars. So okay, and it, so f oh times five, so it would be a total of one hundred twenty five dollars. So you could buy two full video games pretty much if you beat the mob on a video game version of one versus one hundred. Yay, um. So instead of the asked poll and trust, because it's a fast-paced game and a lot of people have headsets, and let's just say it. I mean, like, if you were on Xbox Live on a headset playing 1 versus 100 Live and someone did the Ask the Mob, do you really want to hear the person out? Number five, what's your name? It wouldn't be a fun time. Uh, so instead they had three trusts. Uh, trust the mob was the most popular answer from the mob. Then it was trust the crowd. The, the basically, it's like the ask the audience. So if the audience picked the majority, you get that. And then there was something called the top 10. It became what was the majority of the top 10 scoring players in the most current round answered. Um, and then if the mob uh, survived, they got like a few dollars as well. I think if the if the mob survived uh, with the one getting wrong, I think the mob only was able to get money. Now I think about it. If the one was wrong, it, like after half of them have been eliminated. So it was like uh, anyone left standing after like five got like 800. And it was like not even that much. And that was kind of disappointing. Um, oh. Let me just do some quick, I don't care, fun facts here. <clears throat> the live host is voice actor and comedian Chris Cashman in the United States and Canada. 
in James McCord in the UK and Ireland. UK and Ireland version, however, does not have a host, a live host for season two. Jen Taylor is the US and Canada, and Olivia Lee in the UK and Ireland both pre-recorded present the questions and count down the mob as they were eliminated. Statistic breaks occur every few questions when the live host provides color commentary about the one and their performance. Guests are interviewed on the show have included Major Nelson. Okay. Uh, Taking Back Sunday. Okay. Cliff Blazinski. Oh, uh, good luck with Lawbreakers. And Felicia Day. Live telephone calls are placed to participants in broadcast during the breaks as 30-second advertisements from sponsors. That's how they make their money. Um, All right. Extended play edition. The extended play eliminates the one in the crowd and simply has all the players complete as a member of the mob of a limitless size. It was typically a 30-minute show with 37 questions. While there were no prizes awarded during extended play, a player's participation contributes to the chance they'll be selected to join the mob. So that's how they audition? Okay. Um, players are able to submit questions to be considered for inclusion. In the extent- I'm reading the wiki page right now. This is a podcast where I read wiki pages. Um, there, here are the, uh, five different featured episodes that were introduced. One, family theme. Two, fanboy night. Three, lifestyle for entertainment. Five sports. Um, family themed. Genres range from history to classroom to kids, television, animals. Color was yellow. Fanboy night included technology and gadgets, video games, comics, and anime. The color was dark purple. Lifestyle was community in questions. He said, she said, in the news, pop culture between the 80s and 90s were themed in this theme. The theme was red-orange. Entertainment was movie quotes, finished the lyrics, gossips, and recently added vampires. Are they cag? Because uh, Twilight, I guess, came out or something. The color was bright red veed. Uh, as they were known to find parts in the genre, players will expect questions to be asked regarding to their national or international solo or team sports. Basic rules or variations. The color was green, because, you know, green, like a field, like a soccer field or football field if you were in the UK. <laughs> um, so... Because of the success of 1 vs. 100, they made an Xbox Live game, which even exceeded the original run of 1 vs. 100. Of course, that wasn't the end of the show. Two years later, in 2010, Game Show Network decided, I'm going to buy the rights to 1 vs. 100 and make our own version. Now, I love Game Show Network, obviously. I'm a game show guy. I love watching reruns of game shows. And, you know, seeing game shows be brought back, it's very fun. Especially like things like Deal or No Deal. It's on CNBC, and they're still giving away a million bucks. It's amazing. But um, when Game Show Network gets a hold of something, it tends to be a little more cheaper. And, like, when I mean cheaper, I mean... You know what? Game shows are cheap, and they say it's cheap. No, this is like now we're going into the bargain basement levels of cheap. The game prize was no longer $1 million. The top prize was now $50,000. I mean, still fifty grand. do not get me wrong, but I, I think the deal with 1 versus 100 is if you're going to do money or the mob on a prize tree, uh, you know, make it feasible. So now here is the price tree: five hundred dollars, seven fifty, one thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand, two thousand five hundred, five thousand, ten thousand, twenty-five thousand, fifty thousand dollars. Oh boy, that is, you know, when you knock out four, like, look, it's Game Show Network, and they follow the same rules. If the mob, 
beats the one the mob makes the money. If the mob was like 30 people left, that would be uh, like they have to split 2500 bucks. That That's like what, like $40 or so? Like that's not a lot of money. Even worse than that, imagine like you knocked out like it was 90 people splitting $500. Like is that really an exciting victory for the mob? It, it, it doesn't really excite me as much probably because the value is there also bob saget was no longer the host because dancing with the stars was a very successful show and carrie and antrabella is one of the best judges on the show she was slated to be the host and she was for the remainder of the game show network run carrie and antrabella is not bob saget well bob saget was basically interacting with contestants carrie ann was basically stuck in what amounted to maybe a black box theater somewhere in Los Angeles, standing behind a giant projector screen with 100 people calling in from Skype. Well, there was one person sitting in like a cylinder somewhere. Well, there was some LED lights flickering in the background. That was the set for one versus 100. What became like a giant gladiatorial battle with purple and blue was kind of just random green holiday christmas lights it's not to say carrie ann antebella is a bad host carrie ann was probably i will even still say one of the better hosts that has ever hosted a show on game show network unfortunately uh when it comes to game show hosting uh she didn't really she doesn't have anything to interact with you you have pre-recorded videos from the mob going this is what i think on every question. In addition to that, because it was Game Show Network's version of the NBC version, so ask the mob, trust the mob, pull the mob, she doesn't have anyone to bounce with except for one contestant. And all she can do is scream, it's one versus 39! It's one versus 22! You got $4,000! Do you want the money or the mob? Oh, that's right. Because they said, oh boy, that is really cheap in the first run of the show. Uh, the later half of the season uh, was uh, 0, 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 10, 25, 50. Sure. Sure, okay, it's still cheap. And then I think they did like a double episode where it was 0, 500, 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000, 25, 50, $100,000. $100,000? Whoa, Zoe, that's great. When like 12 years earlier, there was Russian roulette and they gave away $100,000 a few times on that show. Wow. Um, it's never supposed to be about the cash prize. I should point this out, but. When it comes to a game show network adaptation of a game show, it, it when it's cheapened enough, it it doesn't seem to uh, work. Uh, Carrie Annabelle is a good host. When it comes to hosting, I feel when it comes, to, it has to do with the casting of the person. Uh, Bob Zeg was a good host because then he had stand-up comedians, and he's good at interacting between people and, and audiences because, of course, he's a stand-up comedian. Uh, the thing is, though. Bob Sackett's stand-up when it comes to, you know, crowd work wasn't really utilized the best when it came to 1 versus 100. That's because if you ever see Bob Saget do stand-up comedy, his crowd work is very raunchy. And that barely got into the mob. 
it was there a few times because he did a lot of good da- like digs and dags and, and, and zingers, but not so much, you know, what makes a comedian work. When it comes to getting a comedian to be casted on a game show, uh, you basically need to make sure that their uh, set, what is their personality, their, their branding, whatever their branding is should match the show. Uh, for instance, Steve Harvey, most of his comedy routine is on family, love, relationships. So for Family Feud, a lot of the questions where it's penis Steve, sex-based, divorce, romance, husband-wife, that fits his comedy, so it works. Uh, something like Drew Carey, it, it doesn't really work with his comedy, but it, it works because of his uh, personality. Uh, as an all-American guy, Wayne Brady, they turned the entire show into improvisation and music to best cater to Wayne Brady, and that's what makes it so appealing in today's world. It's no longer a hustly game, it's now a let's have fun and, and sing around. With 1 versus 100, Bob Saget got a little bit of crowd work, but Carrie Ann doesn't get any of that. And Carrie Ann is completely out of her league in this because she has nothing to really contribute. She's a dancer. She's a judge. If there was like a choreography-based talent show, she would be perfect as the host if it was a Game Show Network thing. If there was something involving more physical movement, it would be a great fit for her. But for 1 versus 100, there's not a lot to go off of. And, and for that, she gets, it's a fault for her. And a lot of people blame Carrie Ann. When you read like reports on the Game Show Network edition, why it didn't work, they blame Carrie Ann for this. When a few things could be the budget of the show, uh, the let's pre-record the 100 mob members and ask them a whole bunch of questions in advance sort of thing. Because while it looked like Skype conversations, it really was just, we're going to put a camera in front of you and ask you like 300 questions. And then you're going to tell us why in short 10 second bursts. And then you're going to like give the thumbs down boo or applaud. So we can put you all together in this big old compilation video. It, it, it just, it felt cheap. But it felt cheap in the wrong ways. It's okay for a game show to cut back on budget and still come across as good. However... This show would never have worked on Game Show Network because the appeal for 1 versus 100 was that uh, big, grandiose 100 people in the mob for $1 million. You can't really have the same, you know, emotional appeal. Oh, God, this money will change my life for $10,000. It, it doesn't do that. $10,000 is still a good chunk of cash. That is not going to, you know, be the life changer as, as a lot of game shows would love to have. One hundred. There's a difference between $10,000 and $100,000. $100,000 is a decision because that is like four-year salary. If you are someone working in the Midwest, that is life-changing money. That could buy you a house. That's a down payment on a house. For $10,000, that could put a pool in your backyard. That could... Renovate your kitchen. I could, 
You could you could put a down payment on a new car. That's that's you almost pay it off even. Um, but it's not you know. It's not going to make enough for a sob story, which is, I think, what One Versus 100 and Deal or No Deal are supposed to have. A lot of these big money game shows, the money is used as a tool to have the psychological battle and interpersonal relationship with the contestant. So if a money or mob decision is for like $102,000 and there's 12 people left, if you can knock out all 12 people, you get a million dollars, but you currently have $102,000. If you fail, they get your $102,000. You get nothing. That's the decision that makes the show interesting. For a Game Show Network edition, you're juggling over $3,000. It's not end-all, be-all, and that's what makes the show faulty, I feel. And Carrie and Antebella, once again, does not get any help. And her personality isn't really shown, except for that she's still her extremely bright, joyful person. That's it. And I like Carrie Ann. It, it's there's so many other game shows she could do if there was like a revival of body language she would be perfect on that if they were to do uh like a charade based game show it doesn't have to be body language she'd be great at that if there was like a game show network um version of like a hollywood game night before hollywood game night she would have been great if there was like um if there was some sort of name that tune even she would have been great Something to do with dance and have and joy. She is a joyful person. Her personality is supposed to be you're happy. She's a happy person. And you're walking at this very dimly lit Christmas light projector screen monitor. It looks like all she's doing is talking to an HD television. And that's the game show. There's no podiums. Barely an audience. And a very lackluster cash prize on Game Show Network. It does not appeal. But what makes One Versus 100 a great game show was this battle royale aspect of we're focused on the one taking out 100 people. And can they do it and get a million dollars? Or is enough money able for them to just leave? So what happens is a lot of mob members obviously don't make money. So imagine you're very smart you don't really get paid that much because imagine someone lost all three helps and they're out of money or the mob for like $84,000. They're going to take the money and leave. Or even if it was a season two and it was the, it was the NBC edition where, you know, they now have a hundred grand. Do you want the money or the mob? No, I'm good. If there's 25 people left, I'm good. I'm going to take the hundred grand beyond my way. That, that's the game show. So a lot of the time, the mob really gets screwed over. And for the casting people, they kind of try to pull a lot of regular Joes in the show only because they want to say, like, well, if you're, you can be a repeat contestant here, and if we love having you keep playing, it's good for charity work. It's good for this. Come on, be a contestant on versus 100. You'll have a good time. It, it does not help that much when it comes to a GSN version or an NBC version to be a mob member. I think that's the only real negative you can give for this game show well versus the uk edition where if the contestant uh, fails the one now is someone from the remaining few people to keep playing australia has something similar with very low payout but still a million pound a million dollar prize 
and in the American version, it, it was it it just degraded into this GSN edition, and it's very disappointing. And it's one of the cooler shows. And I know this show could definitely be rebooted back in America. The real question is like, what do you do? And um, I've been like debating this because uh, I think the final like way to end this game show podcast is essentially just like how do you like like upgrade the show update the show make it fresh make it hot and um i i think like if it was like a game show network edition you would need to make sure there was a hundred people present in studio um and that's going to be tough because that's a very ambitious casting call and that's a very ambitious show um, but if you can cheapen it up, make it like a hundred thousand dollar prize and make it so like every question is $100 per head plus whatever is a hundred dollars thereafter. So it's hundred dollars for correct answer, $200 next question, $300 next question, but don't do that thousand dollar top, make it go a little more, make it keep going because then you will see a big inflation when it comes to money or the mob for, say, 40 people. Or what you could do to make the show even cooler um, but still cheaper is while it's 1 versus 100, if at any point the, the 1 fails, instead of the mob members splitting the money, we have 16 people left. And one of those 16 becomes the new one, and we just reset the score with 15 people left. So now they're playing for $100 a question, $200 a question. If they can beat the mob, you know, they'll make whatever money is left over. So 16 times maybe five questions, that's about $3,000 or so. And, that, that, and that's a way you can cheapen the show while still having an appeal. And I think that would definitely make the show a little cooler if it's a cheap GSN edition, uh, because then you'll have a guaranteed payout and a guaranteed winner, even if it's a one versus one, because then the one versus one for $100 or so, and then that's okay. If it was a game show, if it was back to NBC, I think what it needs to be is simply just $500 increments. Just keep making the increments $500. Just keep growing it $500 at a time. If you make beat them hundred, you get the million dollars. That's all they really need to do is just five hundred dollar increases, not one thousand dollar increases. So if it was an NBC edition, you know, five hundred dollars, one thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars, twenty five hundred dollars, three thousand dollars, thirty five hundred dollars, four thousand dollars, forty five hundred dollars, five thousand dollars, five thousand five hundred dollars. And then when it comes down to that twenty people, oh yeah. There's only one last lifeline, and that's the sneak peek. When I think there's 20 or so people left, there is a help where they get to show you the first part of the question, and then you got to decide if it's the money or the mob. But you got to remember, it could be a two-part question. So you could get screwed over by, I don't know, or I do know, and then they ask you, like, the guy who's married to this, the guy who's married to this, or the guy who's married to this. So that becomes a nice... uh, differentiate i think just go 500 dollars per head and just grow it would be cool um in addition to that uh, if it's a money or the mob of course if the person takes the money and leaves pick someone left from the mob to be the one and keep the ball going 
Um, and then you make sure that the Rain Mob members, like if it was 12 or 13, are now in the front. So we get to know them a little more. And then you reset the mob. I think that something like that would work. Um, and then you can start creating characters within the mob of the one person who got like who got through like three different contestants and still hasn't been picked. So then when the time comes that they're finally the one, everyone can have that celebration of finally they did it. Because there is no real returning champions on 1 versus 100, but there's recurring mob members. So that is the way you can create characters within the game. Of course, the story of the 1 vs. 100 is the gladiatorial battle of 1 versus AC of 100. So it's sort of like 300, where it's the 1 versus a huge crowd of people. So it's like a big old grandiose gladiatorial thumbs up, thumbs down, but with trivia. That's kind of the story they want to present to these people. Um, and then it's not just anybody. you got all these cool people. And... It, it, it should be something where if you're going to tell a story of the game, you got to make sure that set works. And the set did work. Season 2 set is a really good set. If you can do a Season 2 set with the Season 1 format, you would have a good hit. I don't even think they should have lifelines, to be honest. I don't think they should have ask or, or trust or any of it. I think they should just scrap it. So that way, every question could be their last, and there is no help. And if they fail, it's over for them. And even then, you know what would be really cool is if uh, you can even just like change the GSN version that I just created with the $100 increments and keep going up, and just do that to um, to the the NBC version. Make it $500 per head. And then just keep going and trickle it down so there's a guaranteed winner at the end. And it could be as much as $500 or as much as $500,000. You never know. And I think that would also uh, make the show very cool. Um, or maybe just uh, a solid $50,000 last man standing rule. You could even just do the last man standing contest and just go by that rule. I kind of thought that version was... It wasn't one versus 100. It just became everyone answers questions and then there's one person left standing. That's a totally different format, but that one also works. Difference is, I think a last man standing competition definitely is today's world of HQ and confetti. These uh, mobile phone games where everyone answers the same question at the same time and has 10 seconds to answer. If you're right, you get the money. Uh, if you fail, you're out unless you have a bonus life. Um, and if it's, if you get the money, it's like a thousand dollars and any winners split the money, much like a mob member on one versus 100. That's kind of how the, the modern day, uh, phone games kind of are working. And it's kind of because of game shows like one versus 100, the biggest quiz show in the world is basically their marketing thing because it's 101 contestants at the start of the game. And when we get down to it, it should be one person left standing. And I think that was the grand appeal of 1 versus 100. When a GSN version, it's sort of lackluster. But the NBC edition did spawn an Xbox Live edition that had a cult following. And even if the budget on that show was even cheaper than Game Show Network, 
there was this cult appeal. And I think for Game Show Network, uh, if they were going to try a version of this, even though I've, they should really have 100 people in studio, they could easily just get 100 people calling in from Skype from all over the country. Hey, call in at this number, get your webcam ready, and we'll pull 100 people to play the game. Something like that could always work. By the works of HQ and Confetti, people are on their phones playing a game show at a specific time. For for something like a thousand bucks, when split among like eighty people, is like thirteen dollars, and it's it's okay. And that that's part of the appeal of these HQ and Confetti these these games where it's like you get very little money, but it's that thought of you win that I can understand for a game show network version. For NBC's edition, and I think the appeal when they originally created the game, it is that interpersonal dilemma when you have like $70,000 and there's 20 people left. Do you keep playing for a little bit more money or is now the time to go? Because on 1 versus 100, unlike a deal or no deal, unlike a, a well, Millionaire is different. Millionaire is a prize tree, and that's season two as well, is. You know, you have to eliminate every 10 people, you get the money. But uh, on, on this show, the money will always go up. So the person, if they keep getting the questions right and knock out people, their bank will keep growing. So they'll always be at a net profit if they keep going one more time and getting questions right. It's only when they fail that one time and it goes to the mob and they split it that they actually lose it all. Um, that's the, that's basically how NBC's one versus 100 worked more or less. Um, let me just quickly see something real quick here. Um, another NBC big money game show that should be called dumb or super dumb. How else to gauge the candy power required to answer the show's opening question? The 2003 movie Seabiscuit feature, what kind of animal? Well, that's an easy question. No shit. Uh, that's that's kind of how it goes. Um, the point of 100, uh, Alessandria Stanley opined, the point of 1 versus 100 is different. Knowledge is beside the point. I don't think so. Because I think 1 versus 100 is a trivia game show. Um... Animal and NBC have managed to be, do the seemingly impossible, combining on a quiz trivia show nearly as mentally undermanding as their no-skill-required hit, Deal or No Deal. The questions are so simple that amassing thousands isn't much harder than guessing which case to open. Once again, I disagree with that. I think, that, like, once again, like, I'm reading all these little reviews that's in the reception page of the wiki page of 1 versus 100. I will say uh, the, the, the trivia aspect on 1 versus 100, because I've watched a few episodes before recording this, uh, the appeal of the trivia is supposed to be simple in the beginning, and then it gets more complex as you go along, much like Millionaire. Imagine watch, like reading a review of Millionaire, and, and it's like, well, this show sucks because the $100 question is like, uh, uh, like, like, what kind of animal is Garfield? Cat? Dog? 
uh, octopus or blue whale. It, it doesn't. The first questions are always easy, so you ease the contestant into the game. A lot of, a lot of. This is a. This is this is true to a lot of game shows, especially big money game shows. They intentionally stack the deck because they know they don't really want that million dollar payoff. But they, if you earn, but if you get that question right, you earned it. They want to ease you into the tension of the game. That's why the first couple of questions tend to be no brainers because you just got out on the set. You've been in a green room for maybe three hours. You're you you're hungry a bit, maybe sleepy, because you were there at five a.m. And they put you aside, and then they say, "Here's the rules. You're the contestant. Here's the host, and here we go." And they start the game. There's lights on you. There's an audience. You're already like dripping wet and nervous. So when you're nervous. You don't know which way is up. You barely know your name. So to help you out, a lot of these like prize tree game shows like One Versus 100, like Millionaire, they intentionally, it's part of the DNA of these game shows to make sure the first question is as simple as it could be so you can at least have a breathing room. It's not so much so you can go, oh, I want the thousand bucks and go. Because the producers and everyone expects you to at least go on a few more questions and then debate over $50,000, for instance. It's it's not challenging at all. So for one versus 100, the easy questions, yeah, they're 100 bucks. They're not supposed to be big money game. It's only when it's a little later that it becomes something. So if, if it was up to them, maybe they want to do $1, $10, $100, $1,000. They, they don't care. The easy questions are, are are not something that you should just get get angry about. Um, plus, even though Sea Biscuit was a big movie at the time of, because uh, at the year and how it was, who's to say that person knows what Sea Biscuit is? It, it's kind of like uh, asking where is Black Panther from. Like the answer is Wakanda. But if you've never seen Black Panther or don't care about the Wakanda Forever thing, it doesn't matter. Um, one versus 100 definitely is a classic game show. I uh, it spawned, yes, the board games and plug and plays and video games and a cult phenomenon when it came to Xbox Live. Its Battle Royale format is something that is really interesting with. And I think if uh, one versus 100 was to be done today, they would do the appeal that is of a bat of a player known as Battlegrounds or Fortnite to try and sell people on that 100 people start, but one will be left standing. Something like that will be where they'll be coming from if they ever were to bring back one versus 100. Don't know who to be the host. Bring back Bob Saget, maybe. But the the gameplay should really be just you know one person. And it's this weird fear of, oh, crap, 100 people. That's a lot of people I have to knock out on one question or maybe five. The best thing about 1 versus 100 that I remember was the very first promos to come out from the show was 
Bob Saget basically, as a joke to the contestant, have you ever felt like the world is out to get you? Well, here's 100 people that want to take you down. Things like that, because that really sets the tone of the show. It is intended to be that one person is the lone wolf, that one person, and there's the whole world out to get him, or in this case, 100 people because they want some money. That is one versus 100 in a nutshell. It is that paranoia that comes with the show. Because then there's the mob that really, when that question comes up, do you want the money or do you want the mob? You have $150,000 and there's only nine people left for $1 million. Money or the mob? And that's that tension. So of course, you're going, oh no, 150 is a lot of money. That's a lot of things. There's no supporters, but I mean, on the first few episodes, they did have like, a supporter in the audience to go eh, one more question or stop playing so the audience of course is now saying stop playing or keep playing but the mob in the audience like there's that mob podiums they're all yelling at you come on one more come on bring it on they're doing the the, the just bring it dwayne rock johnson come on one more you got it come on one more you can do it they're just taunting the contestant to keep playing so it makes it even more worse because now the in-house rivalry is the mob a lot of game shows are um beat the house kind of game shows things like millionaire uh or or uh minute to win it where there's no you're not against another contestant you're against you know the production and the game concept itself uh, there's man versus man versus man like Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. There's man versus house like a Price is Right or even then though it's slightly not even man versus house on Price is Right. That is also contestant versus contestant with the one bid and the showcase showdown and the the showcase round. Uh, but but for this show. It is also quasi, it's man versus the house because it's you have to beat the mob for the $1 million, but it's also man versus 100 people. It's a 100-man melee for fans of Super Smash Brothers. That is one versus 100. And that is what makes the show very exciting to watch. If they can cast the right person, get the right mob members, ask the right questions, bring the money up, and have that interpersonal question of how much money is enough for me to quit. And then if that odd chance happens where they're at like $200,000 and they get that question wrong. Oh, the world is like crushing under them. And that is always tough. That happened on 1 versus 100. I remember there was a contestant that had a whole lot of money. And then he got that question wrong and it was so close. And I think it was a quarter million dollars or, and he just was in tears when he got the question wrong. Cause he know, you know, we have a quarter million dollars in your hand and you say, keep playing and then you fault. It, it, it's hurtful. That's the, the roughest point of, of one versus 100, but how the show flipped the script and made it so, okay, you lost but let's just show you. You got five people left in the mob. Let's meet these people. Then you get to introduce these mob members. And they're crying because they now have $50,000. And 
and they get to explain just a little bit about like their backstory and it's well that fifty thousand dollars i'm now out of credit i'm now out of student loan debt i'm now out of credit card debt my mom's in the hospital and that's going to help me a whole lot things like that flip the script on even though you have made the biggest mistake and lost a, sh- a crap load of money i was only saying shitload but yeah it's an adult show so you lose all this money you still you still made a difference because even though you made all these co- people you knocked out all these people and made all this money and lost it the money you lost is still going towards a good place it's not out of the game for good and that is an also a good resolution to come from the show while the main show is supposed to be about the one, sometimes it's good to know about the mob as well. And that's, I think, a great part about one versus 100. And and why uh, the show could be about just the one, or it could be about this mob. And it ultimately is that decision about the money, while these really weird questions show up where you have to think not just about one thing, but multiple things at the same time. That's, that's the, that's the main appeal for one versus 100. Um, I don't know if I like the price tree though, but that's inside another day. Um, that's, that's the full exploration I can say about one versus 100. Uh, if you have any questions about one versus hundred corrections or or just thoughts, uh, send it my way on Twitter at Jordan Ha or send me an email at jordanhaas at gmail dot com, uh, and I'll give it a, a go. There's also a contact form on jordanhaas dot com. Um, so uh, the I think it's time to before we end the show to have a new segment. While I just did a quick exploration behind one of my favorite game shows, I think it's time that we introduce a 110-part segment with this show uh, called Let's Understand Pricing Games. So The Price is Right is the all-American game show. Of course, we're going to be talking about The Price is Right on this very show. But I don't want to go through all 110 pricing games in that episode. That will be a huge chunk of my time. Ones that could be better spent talking about things like The Big Wheel or The One Bid or the original Bill Cullen edition. So instead, we decided to do a 110-part series exploring every pricing game on The Price is Right, where each episode where we talk about a game show, we will also be talking about a Price is Right pricing game. And I know what you're saying. When are you going to do Plinko? Soon. We're basically going to do this chronologically uh, from the start of the new Price is Right all the way to today. So the first game is any number, and the end of our 110-part series will be Gridlock, unless at the end of this 110-part series, there's like two or three more pricing games. So The Price is Right started September 4th, 1972. Lock that in your head. That's one that I knew off the top of my head. September 4th, 1972. Because every September 4th, whenever that shows up, is always going to be the start of a huge season of The Price is Right. It's always September 4th. 
1972. Mark that down. That is the tape date of the very first aired Price is Right episode. The very first pricing game played on the Price is Right that day was any number. When the show first started on the Price is Right, it was basically played with a four-digit top prize, a three-digit subprize, and then a three-digit piggy bank. Um, so the rules were simple. Zero through nine are your basically your guesses. You have to figure out what is the price of the big item. Uh, typically, if you watch the show, you would know that top prize is a new car. Um, so what's the four digits in the price of the car? Then there's a medium prize, like say a telescope or a, a, a oven, stove. And then there's the piggy bank, which is either says piggy bank or is a picture of a piggy bank, especially with the modern day version. Uh, none of the di digits repeat. So there's, so for instance, like if the car is 6,500, let's just, let's just make it a little simple, right? $6,543, 6,543. And the stove is $210. That means the piggy bank is $987. You have to keep guessing numbers to fill in the price of the car. So five, that's the second digit. Three, oh, that's that's the last digit you did. One, okay, that's the stove. Zero, that's the stove again. Now, if you get the stove, you win the stove, but you need to keep getting the car. Uh, eight. Nope, that's the piggy bank. Seven. That's the piggy bank. All right, so now if you get one number that's in the price of the piggy bank, you win the piggy bank. One digit, you get the stove. You're still two away from the car. There's your tension that comes with the game. Because the more you call, the more numbers you lose, but the more tension goes within the price of the game. Um, the original one looked like, a, you know, your basic Trilon weird... Well, it wasn't even a trilon. It was like more like a Pentagon-looking felt thing because it was the 70s. When the show later got revived because, hey, did you know cars can be more than $10,000 in the 80s? Uh, it turned into this weird, like, cool gold oval that said any number. Then when it came to the Drew Carey version and it updated again, it became silver and now the board itself would display all 10 numbers. So 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And as a helpful uh, hint to the contestant, with the five digits in the price of the car now, because, you know, it's 17000 12000 or 22000 or 28000 they would give the contestant the first digit in the price of the car. So now they know it's a $20,000 car, but there's another two elsewhere it could very well be in the car it could be somewhere else and that's uh, a part of the any number game that adds to the appeal of the tension um let me pull from the prices right fandom page that is a thing uh the contestant is asked to call out digits one at a time the positions are the board are revealed the contestant wins the first prize once they complete the contestant wins the prize it's less than 988 the losing horns aren't heard but the contestant wins the amount in the piggy bank. The losing horns are played. Any numbers? The first pricing game ever played in the Price is Right. Debuting in its premiere broadcast, September 4th, 1972. Tape number 0011D. It was played for a Chevrolet Vega 
worth $2,764, and it was won. It was also the final pricing game of Bob Barker's final episode on June 15th, 2007. Tape date, 4035K. For a Ford Explorer with 26850 but it was lost. Originally, cards in this game just had four digits, and no free digit was given. Well, no, I, I just said that. Um, if the title of the game was added, despite this, not only was any number the first of the three pricing games to be played, it was won right away, as was bonus game, which is next time. Um, when the game debuted, any number had a physical piggy bank prop, and its line on the board said piggy bank. The former was removed when the later replaced by the now familiar image of the piggy bank to label the row of digits representing the amount inside. Um, 1974, any number's title was added to its board. Uh, at some point in 1975, in October, the sides of the any number game became green. Oh, it became green, you guys. It was green. Okay. Um, look, if you care about color changes and sound effects, I guess we'll, we'll read this on. I mean, look, I like game shows, but some of the stuff Eve and I don't really... It's trivia, but I, it's stuff even I don't even know, and I'm I'm surprised exists. Is, am I going to remember that that sometime in 1975 it went from orange to green? No, but hey, I'm going to read it off anyway. Um, April 26, 2010, the board was silver with no sliding top label, since there are no cards under ten thousand dollars. In addition, the displays have been converted to monitors housing the vein numbers instead of lighted panels. Any number was played perfectly eight times, five times under Bob Barker's tenure, and three times under Drew Carey's tenure. The most recent perfect playing happened on November 19th, 2018. Tape date, 8501K. On May 30th, 2016, the contestant Steven filled in all but the second number of an SUV. After needing only one digit to win it, he filled in the first two digits of a coffee maker and then finished the price of and won the piggy bank. Well, that's tough for Steven. Uh, December 16, 2016, contestant Paul was in similar situation. Steven's A, 0, 1, or 3 could be the finished price of a car, TV, and piggy bank. He picked 3, which won him the car. On January 4, 2017, Milton was in a similar situation. He didn't pick a 4, 9, or 0 to win his SUV. He picked a 4 and won the piggy bank worth $6.24. On May 5, 2017, contestant Lauren was in another simulation. He had to pick between 0, 1, or 6 to win a car. A dishwasher or the piggy bank, she picked the 6, which won her the car. Well, I think that's I think that's the 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 element of the of any number that I think a lot of producers really want, especially when it comes to that game, because you know the the car is supposed to be the grand prize. And, you know, that's pretty much if you want to be on the prize right, that's kind of like the one that's the, the the big big prize you want is the car so for the maximum amount of tension that comes in that game you want to make sure it's everything but one digit on all three because then you're guaranteed a win but you don't know which one and that sets up the most tension you can get um oh here's some trivia i thought that was trivia <clears throat> for the first few times any number was played in Nitra Ford would show the contestant actual piggy bank before the contestant picked numbers. It is played with three prizes, a car, a three-digit prize, worth up to $987, and the money in a piggy bank in dollars and cents, from $1.02 to $9.87. To 
wait, why can't it be zero one two? Why can't it be twelve cents? While the rules of the game technically allow the piggy bank to be worth as little as twelve cents, producer Robert Dobkowitz has stated that he would never actually use an amount lower than one dollar two cents. Its lowest known value was one dollar nine cents, used for the game's first playing. Oh, okay. I never knew that either. Um, <laughs> but that was when Roger was in the production. You never know if the modern producers, they could do 012. Because Rob's not in charge. Um, Dob is no longer has a say in the show. Uh, in this game, a specific car can have a repeating number. For instance, the first car is a 2, another 2 can appear in the price of the... Yeah, I just, I just said that. Um... Prizes that are less than $1,000 cannot have any repeating numbers. In the, well, yeah. If every digit's played once with $1, okay. A number was the only pricing game that was played more than 100 times in one season. The most number of times this game was played in any season was 116. Drew Carey often jokes with contestants that they could use the money from the piggy bank to buy a cheap meal, such as a cheeseburger. What a trivia fact! You could buy a cheeseburger! Um... It was the first of three pricing games to debut on the premiere episode, September 4th, 1972. The other two were bonus game and double prizes, and we'll be talking about those two soon. And then there's foreign versions, but who cares about the foreign versions? Anyway, let's do the quick review version of Any Number. I think Any Number is one of my favorite pricing games. Uh, what makes it such a great standout game is the fact that no matter what, you are a winner. Even though the third prize, the, the piggy bank, is essentially like a zonk on Let's Make a Deal. It's a joke prize. But I feel like if, if they were to really give a piggy bank away, it wouldn't be so bad because then it's kind of like the ceramic Dalmatian on Wheel of Fortune. So you go, wow, I got a piggy bank. I could resell it, make some money because it's the iconic piggy bank from The Price is Right. Um, but a car is a really good prize, as is whatever's the mini prize. So I think the idea is you can win one of three prizes. The negative side of any number... Um, and this is only because it's 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 going to be an ongoing grudge when it comes to a pricing game and the price is right. Is a lot of prizes on the price is right is product placement. So if of course the car is going to have the most extravagant commercial because it's a twenty thousand dollar car, so you're going to hear like it's the Ford Explorer comes always packed with floor baths and an uh, electric seating and whatever. But there's that middle prize. So whoever is that middle prize is the one getting the most screwed over in this game. So if you're GE, if you are like a smartphone, if you are if you are Whirlpool, it, your your prize doesn't matter on the show because the contestants don't want to win your your crappy thing. They want to win the car. It's always what it comes across as when it comes to a game like any number. Everyone's focused on the car, and they don't want you to win the piggy bank. They don't care about that mini prize in the center there, even though it's still a consolation prize that's worth winning. There's no way to win both the mini prize and the car. So it really becomes just a, well, who cares if you win this uh, this air conditioner? It, 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 and that, to me, is an upsetting thing about the price is right. Because the idea of the price is right has always been, and I always thought it would, it should be, just prizes that you want. And you can, if you know the prize, you can have it. 
So if you were, if it was me, I would do some sort of like, let's make a deal addition to the game where you can keep going as long as you avoid the piggy bank. So if you get the first three digits in the price of the smartphone or the, the, the three digit prize, so the smartphone, the microwave, whatever it is, you can keep it or you can keep going for the car. If you get the piggy bank, you only get the piggy bank. Something like that would make for a much more tense show because then you know the contestant will keep going for the car and blow it because that's usually how it goes. Um, but that, that that usually won't happen because it's always about the car or the piggy bank and that milk price is just kind of like the... the if you're in the big family, it's like the the middle brother, the middle sister. It's the one that just gets ignored the most. And I think that's a little sad. Um, but any number is a really fun game. It has a lot of tension. It is one of my favorite car games played on the Price is Right. I I think it's it's a win. It's a winning win. Um, so so that's how I feel about the any number game. Um, I love the look of it. I love the way that when the numbers get called, there's now a little cross kind of like a, to show you that you don't know it. Like the number's already gone. So don't call it anymore. It, it acts as, a, as a fun deduction part of the game because originally when it was Bob Barker and they didn't have the number thing, you would have to basically be reminded of the numbers and have this memory of what, what has been called, what hasn't and look at the board so it does help a lot to the contestant and plus a great uh, game because it is single number zero through nine. It's an easy game for the contestants to look in the crowd and just see contestants hold up both hands to show any number from zero through nine. And I think that is what makes a game very good is it needs to have that element of the contestant playing along with you, the viewer. You can shout out four, five, where? and then he looks at the crowd, and the crowd's going four, five, three. That's what makes a really good prices right pricing game, and that's why it's still going on to this day. If if there's been a perfect game less than a month ago, and it's the first game ever broadcast on on the Prices Right then you definitely have a winning pricing game here. And, and that's why I really love any number. And hey, you know, a car is a car. And I think it's a doable prize. Anyway, that's going to do it for this edition of Let's Know Pricing Game. Join us next time as we look at the second game, Bonus Game. Uh, normally, we would be looking at an email at this point, or talking to a guest about game shows. But once again, I'm lonely. And no one sent any emails. So that will do it for this episode of uh, game shows, I suppose. Thank you for listening to this. For game shows, I suppose, who knows what the next game show will be. Good night. And big smooch!